This is Olivia Berkman, and welcome to Balance Sheet. On a recent Zoom, one of my favorite guests, Herschel Frierson, and I were reflecting on Kamala Harris's ascension to the vice presidency. Herschel reiterated the importance of seeing people who looked like him in leadership roles. Vice President Harris is, of course, the first woman and first woman of color to hold that office and is inspiring millions of young women of color around the world that they too might one day hold such a position. In honor of Black History Month and the powerful women of color who are inspiring others to dream big, I'd like to share my conversation with a truly remarkable woman, one who was introduced to me, of course, by Herschel. Noel Abdurrahim is an assurance partner with PwC, focusing mostly on auditing public companies in the industrial manufacturing industry. Noel has over 15 years of experience serving clients in various sectors, including large consumer and industrial products, utility, retail, higher education, and multinational organizations. And she is also on the board of the National Association of Black Accountants, or NABA. Her story is one of perseverance, selflessness, and leadership. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Noel. Hi, Noel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me today. You've been made a partner at your firm, and I want to know a little bit about the path that you took to get there, maybe starting with your college years going forward. Sure. Uh, Let's just say that I did not plan to be a PwC partner when I started out my career. Actually, I had a goal of just making it two years at PwC getting the experience that I thought I needed and leaving and going out to figure out what I really wanted to be when I grew up. It has been 16, 17 years later, and I'm still here and loving it. But I didn't get here because I had this path all planned out um, and I knew exactly what I needed to do to get here. I reevaluated my career every step of the way, and I kept asking myself, can I see myself staying here longer? Do I have the right support to get to the next level, whatever that level may be? And then lastly, am I enjoying what I'm doing? And that answer was not always yes at every stage of my career, but there were more positives and more things that I enjoyed about what I was doing than not. And so Ultimately, my decision was always yes to stay and yes to try and make it to the next level. And that's really, for me, what helped me succeed is looking at my career in milestones versus trying to look at where I want to be at the pinnacle of my career and aiming for that long distance. I'm, I'm wondering if you had answered no to any of those questions, like, do I have the support around me? Do I like it enough? How swiftly would you act to make a change? You know, it, I did answer no sometimes. And what I really evaluated was, does this no answer change by me doing something different? If I said, no, I don't have the support that I need. Well, can I do something to get that support? I started my career in Detroit and I moved to Atlanta as a manager and stayed with PwC, of course. And when I first moved to Atlanta, I did not have the support that I needed to succeed. You know, everything that I knew was in Michigan. I didn't have the same client relationships. I didn't have the same 
mentor support that I did in Detroit when I moved to Atlanta. And so I did have a no answer to the right support. And I had to dig deep and say, okay, Noel, well, what can you do differently? What needs to change in order to get that right level of support? And if it's not changeable, then do you need to leave the firm? And so I, I plotted out what that looked like. I did ask, you know, the support that I did have. Um, I talked to folks in the firm that maybe weren't in Atlanta and they helped me get on the right path. And obviously I, I stuck around and, and had all the right support that I needed to get to the next promotion level. I want to go back a little bit to your college years. You described your college as a PWI when we first met. And I will admit right now, I did not know what that meant. I had to look that up. (laughs) So for those who don't know, explain what that means and tell me a little bit about your experience, you know, in that environment. Sure. Just to give you a brief intro into who I am. I am a black female. I was born and raised in, in the city of Detroit, Michigan. I went to public school my entire life. Everyone around me, for the most part, was Black, and it's all that I knew. But when I went to Michigan State, I went to a university that was PWI, or a predominantly white institution. And um, someone actually just gave me this analogy a couple of weeks ago. I was like a raisin in a bowl of oatmeal. And I, it was culture shock for me because I was suddenly the minority um, and, and I was not accustomed to that at all. I think that analogy is so interesting because I'm thinking about it more. So if you think about oatmeal, right, not only is oatmeal obviously another color than a raisin, but oatmeal is also has the consistency of being very bonded together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like, what was your level of comfort when you were in school? Lucky for me, I was able to um, join a program for minority students. They have a multicultural business program in the School of Business, and it allowed me to come into the university the summer before my freshman year and go through a week-long residency where you learn about all the different career paths and majors in the business school. You're with about 100 other incoming freshmen. Um, You stay in the dorms. So you kind of get a lay of the land. And so because I had that pre-college program, when I started as a freshman, I at least had a few friends. And so um, I was very fortunate because without that program, I don't know that I would have made it through my freshman year. My first semester, I called my mom every day. I wanted to go home because I, I I didn't, I would go into a classroom of 800 students and wouldn't know anyone. This is culture shock. I'm gonna say it again for a 17 year old kid from Detroit that had never experienced this before. And so, you know, it was that sense of family that I had with that program and the cohort that I had that gave me the familiarity and the comfort and the support that I needed to stick it out. Right. Did your involvement with NABA start in your college years or was that post-college? 
It was in college and it was a part of this program. So each of the organizations within the business school come and they talk to you about the association and how it can benefit you and, and basically try to get you to join. And so NABA uh, was one of those organizations. And of course, going into accounting, I was like, I absolutely need to join NABA. This is in line with my major. Um, it's National Association of Black Accountants. I'm Black. Like it was just the perfect unity. Um, and so uh, right as soon as I started my freshman year, I joined the organization and, and really started to be an active member and participant. And that eventually led to me being a, an officer. I was the vice president for two years. My role specifically as vice president was corporate partnerships and talking to all of the corporate partners and sponsors that had a relationship with, with NABA. And tell me about the progression of your time with NABA to where you are now. NABA has been instrumental in my career. I can clearly say without NABA, I don't think that I would be where I am today. There have been points of, in my career where I was a taker and I took from NABA, meaning NABA just fed what I needed at the time. And there have been other times in my career where I was a giver and I was feeding and contributing to others to help their career and lifetime. And so it's one of those journeys where you get out of it what you put in, but even when you give, that is re reward within itself. And so, you know, just to, to take it back to what NABA has given me, NABA gave me my first job with PwC. I was um, vice president, like I mentioned, and I was responsible for corporate partnerships. And so I had a really good relationship with the PwC recruiter. And she I had no idea that it was time for me to get an internship because again, I didn't know what a career in accounting looked like. I didn't know, you know, you're supposed to do this your freshman year, this year, sophomore year, et cetera. And so I was just participating, coming to meetings, doing what I thought, you know, I needed to do to learn. And so the recruiter came to me and said, hey, we're interested in offering you an interview for an internship. And we went through a bunch of questions and it was just a really casual conversation. And at the end of the call, she said, okay, great. Um, you just finished your first phone interview and we'd like to give you an office visit where you come in and you meet a couple of our managers and a partner. And if they love you like I love you, then you'll be a PwC intern. And it was just that easy. I'll say easy because I had already had the foundation of that relationship with this recruiter. I had done business with her. I had set up meetings with her. So she knew a lot about me. And so she was able to then recommend me for the internship based off of that relationship. You really look back after when you're kind of further along in your career, you look back and you realize those early internships are so important. They're hard to get in a lot of cases, but they're hugely important. And, and this gets back for me and this is what I always tell people that I coach is that it's all about relationships. So let's fast forward. I am now an associate working at PwC. I went through the internship, I graduated, I've started working full time. That same recruiter tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Noel, we'd like you to do some major recruiting at Michigan State. Um, 
you, you're very familiar with the program. You're very familiar with the professors and with PwC. And so, of course, I'm going to give back two things, the university that I love and the recruiter who brought me into the organization. I feel like it's my responsibility to give back. And so I did. And I helped recruit a number of students into the firm through my relationships with the university, as well as with the recruiter that I felt like I needed to to support. And it's so funny, 15 years later, when I made partner, one of the first people to send me an email, I, I hadn't talked to her in years. I told you I moved offices. She reached out to me and she said, as soon as I saw your name, I was so proud. I even started crying. I remember you know, recruiting you as as a student and watching you come through the firm and to see you make partner just made me so proud. Oh my God, that's so sweet. It is. It brought tears to my eyes. Like just the fact that she remembered me, it was beautiful. I want to ask you, because we've talked about, you know, you had a leadership role with NABA. You're quite young to be a partner. You're obviously a very accomplished person. I want to talk about the experience of career accomplishment for a person of color versus the experience of accomplishment for a white person? This one is very, very personal to me because you don't realize unless you're in it or you've been through it, how tough it is to to make it as a person of color and not just in accounting, really in any field, in any profession coming from a background where no one else in my family had gone to college. So I didn't have an uncle, an aunt, a cousin to talk about, okay, when I get to Michigan State, what should I do first? How how should I focus? How should I study? What classes do I take? What do I talk to the financial aid office about? Like things that, you know, as a 17-year-old, I had to figure out and, and didn't have anyone in my suite down to call and just ask questions. And so, you know, that is something that I think people take for granted, just having someone before you or someone close to you that can help you, help guide you along the way. And so for me, at every accomplishment, it brings on another level of responsibility. So I can't just rest and celebrate in my accomplishment because I have this responsibility. It's it's self-inflicted, but this responsibility to help the next person or to make sure those that are around me don't have the same struggles as I do. And it's one of those things that is, it's kind of unwritten, but most people of color who have success feel that same weight and that same level of responsibility versus for the most part, if if you're, you're white, it's kind of what you're supposed to do and you figure it out and you go on and you don't necessarily have this responsibility to share the success or to help the next person. You do it and and many white people do, but um, it's a different level of responsibility when you're the first or you're one of very few You've got that, I I don't know how else to say it, that level of responsibility to give back and um, make the journey less painful or less of a struggle for others. Right. I feel like as a white person, you, if you kind of reach down and help 
someone else come up behind you, it's an act of like altruism. But if you are a person of color, it's more of like an obligation, more of of like a real necessity. There's urgency there. Does that sound right to you? You hit it and hit it spot on. Um, you you are not successful unless you create the next version of you in someone else. Yeah, yeah. This concept first planted a seed when I spoke with Herschel, who is one of my favorite guests on the podcast and, and how I was introduced to you. And he really shared the same feeling. Like you said, he can't rest. He is always pushing and fe- and he feels the need to keep pushing and pushing himself and then simultaneously reaching back and bringing others along with him. You mentioned that you coach others. Tell me about like what specifically you're doing for those beneath you who, who are also ambitious, who also want to climb the ranks. I know obviously NABA is a big way, but what are some of the specific ways? Yeah, I have this in before COVID (laughs) open door policy. A lot of times people look at partners and they say, oh, I can't talk to a partner because I'm only this, or I'm only been here for five years or so. I have a policy that I don't care who reaches out to me. I'm going to make time for them and I'm going to give them whatever they need and help them in any way possible. My team, my client service teams always tease me because my calendar is literally always full. And so between client work and having a conversation with a staff person out of LA that got my name from Herschel, for example, and said, you know, Herschel said, Noel is a good person to talk to. Whatever they ask for, I will make time for. Um, And I'll continue to make time for them as long as they're taking this mentoring relationship seriously. And so for that reason, like my days are really full and they're draining, but they're so fulfilling and rewarding. I will put my political capital on the line for someone that needs me. And that's something that is taking it the extra mile. It's one thing to have a conversation and give advice, but then when someone says, okay, I need your support and I need you to talk to this person and see if they'll give me an opportunity, that's action. And that part takes risk, but if you don't do it, then you're limiting or potentially limiting the career progression of the person that needs you. I'm thinking about you describing yourself as a freshman walking into a class of 800 and feeling like you're the only one there who maybe looks like you. And we also have talked about, you know, how white people take that for granted, obviously take a lot of things for granted, but take for granted seeing someone, having someone before you. That's right. Kind of paved the way. And Herschel, and I talked a lot about that importance of seeing people that look like you or have a similar background as you, specifically in leadership positions. And he said something to me. He said, if I can see it, I can be it. And that, you know, made a lot of sense to me. And I brought it up to you. And your response was, if I don't see one, I will be one. That's right. Like that just struck me. And I want to know more about 
where that drive comes from. You said it right at the beginning of of this passage and that I walk into a classroom of 800 students and I'm just the only. And so there have been many, many times in my life, in my career, where I was the only. And so I had to reach deep down and say, are you going to let this fear or this perceived restriction on progress and success limit you, stop you? Or are you going to use it to say, let me be the first so that I can show someone else that it's possible and then turn around and lift them up to come where I am? If if I limit my success only by what I see, then I wouldn't be a partner today. Because unbeknownst to me, when I was going on this journey, when I make partner, I found out that I was the first Black woman in PwC in Atlanta ever. Oh, wow. There had never been another Black female partner in our Atlanta office. And so had I, you know, come into the office and looked around and said, oh, no, there, I don't see any Black females. You know, that could have stopped me from continuing. It could have stopped me in my journey and I wouldn't be where I am today. But instead I said, you know what? I don't see one. (laughs) So let me learn not just from the other black male partners, but the other partners in the firm. What does it take to be successful? Let me do that. And then, like I said, show others that there's a path for you. And why do you think you weren't defeated by by that, by a lack of people that looked like you, black women in the in that partner role? Why do you think that wasn't discouraged? Like, what is it about you? What is it about the way that maybe you grew up or or like what makes you the way that you are? I'm very competitive. I, I like a good challenge. There's very few challenges that I've backed down from. That's one. Two, I've always wanted to be the best. I was a jazz musician. I actually was a dual major at Michigan State at the beginning. I played alto saxophone. And in my mind, I was going to be this famous jazz musician and travel all across the world and um, I was going to be, you know, not not the first, obviously, but one of the few in in that field of of color. And I remember same same situation. I remember in high school going to state competitions, sitting in the waiting room and looking around, and I was one of very few musicians that looked like me. And so I, I had these experiences early, but I also had that competitive nature. And then you add to that the immense amount of support from my family. And I just knew that whatever I wanted to do in life, if I worked at it and I leveraged the support, I could do it. I could do it. And it hasn't, it hasn't stopped me yet. I mean, there, there are still goals that I have in life. Again, going back to my my, my milestone, I, I've got milestones that I've got to hit to, to make that, but I've got goals. Um, many of my goals, there are no, no people of color, let alone a woman of color in those types of, of positions. And, but that isn't stopping me because I know that 
if I know what it takes, that's important, then I can work to achieve it. The key is having the right relationships and knowledge to be able to find out what it takes. That's the secret sauce. If you don't know what it takes, you don't know what you're working towards. It takes balance and it takes perseverance because there have been many failures and you don't get interviewed for your failures, right? You get interviewed because you just make partner. You get interviewed because you've got this national role and somebody wants to talk to you, but I don't ever hide my shortcomings or my failures, especially when I talk to the folks that I mentor because they need to know that it's not going to be perfect and it's not going to be easy, but it will be worth it. I had the opportunity to to co-lead a program at the firm where we talked to hundreds of incoming new hires. They probably have been with the firm on average a couple of months, so very, very new. And it's all Black and Latinx joiners. And after the the first um, couple days of the program, me and my co-host got feedback and emails and, and messages about how they appreciated how real and transparent we were. We talked about struggling. We talked about imposter syndrome. We talked about the times where we were walking out the door and leaving and something pulled us back. And so I don't ever want to do an interview or talk to a group of people and look like this journey has just been mapped out for me and perfect because I want them to know when they get to those roadblocks that it's part of the journey and it's an important part of the journey because that is what you tap into when you're having those hard times. You reflect on the last time you were at this crossroad and what are those skills? What what did I use to get through so that I can tap into those and get through this one as well? Well, I'm glad that you brought up roadblocks because I did want to talk about your experience through COVID. And I know you have young children at home. So tell me how you've been balancing the demands of your job and the demands of raising and schooling really young children. It has been interesting. It has been challenging. It has helped me grow as a professional and as a parent. When you have school-age kids and you work, you don't get a lot of time at home with your kids. It's just how the day goes. It's how it's designed. They're at school, you're at work, you come home, you've got dinner, you, you probably have activities. And so there's only a few hours in the day, in the weekday, where you spend time with your kids. And then of course you have the weekends. And so COVID and working from home has, allowed me to spend a lot of time with my kids and it has it's tested me. I am not a teacher. I definitely don't have the patience to be the teacher, but I need to be there for my kids and help them learn and grow. You've heard the line that your kids don't learn from what you tell them. They learn from what you show them. And so exercising patience, flexibility and grace and You know, little things like they're used to being able to run up and hug mommy when she's at home, right? Because when I'm at home, I'm not working. Right. You change that and suddenly home is work. There were a few weeks where 
I keep my office door closed. They wouldn't be able to come in. I'm on a call. I'm like giving them the hand. No, not right now. And it was stressful for them. It was stressful for me. They didn't like it. They didn't feel the love from mommy that they were accustomed to. And I saw it. And so unless I was on an extremely important meeting where I could have no distractions, I started leaving my door open. If they came in and ran and gave me a hug, even if I was on with a client, oh, well, this is this is what is, is happening. My kids need to know that they have access to me in their home. If, if I wasn't flexible and willing to learn and adapt, this could have been traumatizing for us and our relationship. But what I realized is that this is new for them. This is new for me. Let's evolve together and figure out what works for us and create those boundaries that allow us to continue to grow in our relationship. I love that. I was very similar in the beginning. I was so scared that, you know, my now 17 month old was going to barge in the room and be screaming and crying in the background. And finally, I was like, why am I trying to pretend like I'm not working from home Mm -hmm. with with a toddler? Like everyone's in the same boat. I mean, not everyone has a toddler, but like you, I just started kind of letting him roam. And of course, if I'm doing something like this where I need quiet, um, that's a different thing. But otherwise, you know, if he wants to pop on screen, it's to the point now where no one even acknowledges if he's sitting in my lap because everyone's used to seeing him and they're like, right, she's a young mom and that's her reality. I love what you said. Your home is a very sacred place for your kids. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about having access to you, obviously physically, but also emotionally when they're in their home. I wonder if any of the adjustments that you've made for COVID, you think they'll stick when maybe we're all vaccinated, people are starting to return to the office. What do you think are some of the more permanent changes, if any? What I am, if I'm being transparent, What I am afraid of is that the progress that we've made on women in the workplace, Mm -hmm. that some of that is going to get lost in this transition back to work. Because for folks that don't bear most of the responsibility for kids and taking care of home, let me be clear, I know everybody's situation is different. There are some fathers who are very active in child raising But when you deal with an industry like accounting, that is very, especially public accounting, that is very male dominated, I see it all the time that my colleagues and and my peers and other partners are the only person working in their household a lot of the times and their wife doesn't work anymore. And so what I'm afraid is that when things go back to normal, and I'm using air quotes, even though you can't see me. The, the folks that were used to not having that responsibility will go back to everyday life. And whew, I'm so glad to be back in the office. Let me just jump right back into it. And those that have a high responsibility at home, it's going to be a tougher transition. I know personally, I'm anticipating that transition being tough. And so how do we keep the the playing field level? How do we ensure that everyone has the same opportunity to be successful when they transition back to work, um, regardless of what their responsibilities are at home. Mm -hmm. 
knowing that we can be successful and we can work from home because most of us have been doing it for a year now. What is it going to look like when I say, hey, um, I know we've got this deadline coming up, but I'm working from home today. Is that going to impact how people perceive me? Is that going to impact how successful people think I can be? Even if I'm still doing the work, if I'm not there and at the client site or at the PwC office, is there some unintended consequences of my choice to work from home, even though I'm still getting the same amount of work done? I, I'll say for me, even though I'm able to spend time working, sometimes it's off hours. So it's maybe it's really early or it's later, you know, after I put my son to bed uh, where I'm catching up on things. So I know and I'm able to prove that I can do my work. What concerns me sometimes is because I am spending all day with a toddler and jumping in and out of work and trying to keep the house together, I feel there's much less room for the extra stuff for me. Like not just personally, the self-care kind of stuff, but professionally, that creativity, I don't have the capacity for going the extra mile like I might if I was still in an office or even if I was working from home, but I had childcare. That's right. And, and, and not all actions or consequences are ill-willed. And, and, and I'll tell you, you know, I had a, a mentor that was super supportive of me. And I remember him coming to me and saying, hey, just so you know, we had this opportunity, but I didn't even suggest you because I know you've got the two kids at home. And so I didn't want you to have to stress about trying to take on more. Hmm. And in that moment, I said to him, you don't get to make that decision for me. You present it to me and say, hey, this is what it's going to mean. It's probably going to mean more hours. It's probably going to mean you doing more than you're accustomed to. Are you okay with that? Do you want me to put your name as a suggestion? I might have said no, but you took away that opportunity to say no with good intentions, but it's not something that I wanted him to make for me, not a decision I wanted him to make for me. Right. It's tough to think about because you wonder where else that has happened, you know, along the way for you. Yeah, it's one of those life lessons that I tell people, whoever wants to hear, and it's a term that I use called dreaming out loud. There were years within the firm where I knew I wanted to be a partner, but I was so terrified to say it. I said, you know, if I say it now, people are going to say, yeah, right. She, she can never be a partner. Like, how is that even possible? And so I kept this dream to myself for fear of what others might think or that they would look at me and say, she's not ready. She'll never be ready because they were looking at my current circumstances and not, you know, where I could go. It wasn't until I said it out loud, I had a mentor that said, all right, Noah, we've been beating around the bush long enough. I've been mentoring you for years now. What do you want to do? And I would say, what? Like, you know me, you know that I want to be a partner. He's, he's like, no, you've never said it to me. Hmm. Doing things to help you get ready, but you've never said to me that you would like to be a partner at this firm. I want to hear you say it. And I want you to meet it. And so it was from that point on, you know, until you put that idea into someone else's mind, they're not thinking of you in that way. 
And so don't be afraid. It is going to put more pressure on you. It is going to challenge you. People are going to give you tests to see how you deal with it. That's what you want. You can't be the best without being challenged and without a little bit of pressure. And as soon as I started saying it openly, I for sure got tested. I for sure got some opportunities that I wasn't quite ready for, but I had to stretch myself to prove that I was in the right place. And so I encourage everybody to dream out loud. And if you don't, then you're the only one working towards your dream. And you can't get anywhere without support and help from others. Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member, or look for the link in this episode's show notes. (music) 